In this episode, our guest today is an actor, author, documentarian, mother, and the wife of an Academy Award-winning director. Her storytelling of stigmatized and marginalized women has won numerous awards and has broken the stereotypical understanding and image of professions once thought of as freakish and on the edge of society. So I hope you'll join us as we spend the next hour with Leslie Zemeckis. There are two basic motivating forces, fear and love. When we're afraid, we pull back from life. When we're in love, we open up to all that life has to offer with passion, excitement, and acceptance. Coming to you from our studio in Santa Barbara, California, this is the Fear Me Out podcast. We're not your typical self-help program. Our show takes a deep dive into those psychological issues that affect us on a daily basis. We hope to shift your perspective and have you experiencing emotions differently. Now here are your hosts, Kim Foskey and Dr. Dana Saperstein. So Wesley, as uh, we were talking uh, before we started recording, um, doing research on you and and looking at the documentaries you produced, some of the articles that you've written, movies you've been in, You've lived a pretty robust life already. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that, that's a good way. Robust. Let's see. Let's see. A- actor. Yeah. Documentarian. Yeah. Author. Yeah. Mother. Yeah. Married to an Academy Award director. Yep. That uh, I, I, I they used to call that a triple threat, but I think that's a, a what do you call five? I don't even know what the number five. Quintuple. Quintuple. Um, their threat on that. So anyway, so the next uh, 59 minutes and 30 seconds, how did you get there? I don't know. <laughs> One foot in front of the other. I mean, really. So let, let's, let, let's start with, um, I'm going to assume that acting was your original calling. Mm-hmm. And so, so how did that begin for you? I think actually, you know, I'd say storytelling because I was always interested in writing, always interested in reading movies, that kind of thing, you know, and it's just your basic go to LA and start pursuing it as an actor. And then of course you learn more things along the way and you think, oh, I can do that. So you try directing or you try, you know, writing a book or, or, or different things. I, and I think it's, you know, just not staying doing one thing. How old were you when you first, uh, you said you came to, to Los Angeles? Well, we don't need to go into ages. Ages doesn't matter. No, I'm not, I'm not asking how old you are now. I, I'm just wondering how old you were when you got started. Right out of school. Out of school. And yeah. where did you come from? San Diego. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm a California girl. And, and so you didn't, uh, the acting bug didn't strike you till a little bit later. So you weren't in productions as a, as a child or no. school productions or anything like that? Uh, no, I mean, I, you know, danced, those kind of things. But I don't even remember. It's so funny. I don't remember any schools having any plays, but they must have. But I mean, it's not that it didn't. I was just waiting to come up here to pursue it here. This is Santa Barbara, but. <laughs> but in, in Los Angeles. Was, yeah. 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 Um, and then. Did you have, do you have any idea in acting you wanted to be on stage, movie, television, or what was your calling at early All on? of it. I did a lot of theater. I love theater. And you're trained as a method actor? Or? 
I guess that's what you would call it. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think, you know, after you're around long enough and you have an, enough different teachers, there's all kinds of training that just kind of blends in. So I wouldn't say I'm particularly one thing over the other. So do you have the, do you have the acting bug or was it just a, a profession that you liked and it just kind of morphed into other things within entertainment that you like doing? What do you mean? Don't you think the acting bug's the same thing as pursuing it? I mean, I don't think you would pursue it if you didn't, if that wasn't a passion. Okay. Yeah, that was the question I was asking. Yeah. Was it? It's a passion of yours. Yeah. And, and does it mean? Is it still a passion of yours today? Or yes, it is. Okay. When did you start writing? Well, I think I've always dabbled in writing. I remember trying to write a play, and then you know, it's like, oh, I don't like this form or whatever. But I think the when I did my first documentary in 2005, there was so many stories. Let me see if this if I'm telling the truth. Yeah, I didn't try and do too much before that. But so, so 2005, I, I directed and wrote and produced my first documentary about the history of burlesque. And there were so many stories that, of course, I can't get into a 90-minute film that I just said, I'm going to go write a book about this. And then that's when I just sat down and had the time and did it. What made you interested in that topic in the first place? Nobody had really done it from the woman's point of view. Oh. Um, I really kind of fell into it. I was doing a one woman show and my character was based loosely on Gypsy Rose Lee and Mae West. And so I was kind of researching their lives and the word burlesque came up and I was like, oh, what's burlesque? So I started searching it and you really couldn't find anything um, beyond, there was a lot of stuff on the, on the male comedians, but everything else about the women was just their name and kind of, this was their act. And I've just thought, well, I, I want to know more. What do you mean this is just their name? You'd, especially back in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, how did these women get into it? What did their family think about it? What, what happened to them when, it, when burlesque died? And so that's when I started researching it, and it just kind of snowballed. I ended up talking to somebody who knew somebody who'd been in it, and just, you know, then I spent two years going across the country interviewing everybody I could who had been an original burlesque from, and I'm talking from like the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, which almost all of them are gone now, except for maybe one is still alive. Betty Rowland, who was huge, really, really famous in the 30s. Um, she just died. She was 106. Wow. wow. And these stories weren't told. And they were so grateful when I went in there. You know, at first they were hesitant. And then I, I and I, I went there with a friend of mine. I said, come on, let's get a camera and let's just go shoot this film. And Sherry Hellard, and who produced it with me, just like, yes. And we would just go into their houses and they would just open up. It was like, here's my trunk of pictures and here's all of this. And they said, nobody ever asked us. And they had great story after great story. That was amazing. They were amazing. So what was the background of burlesque? Because you said it started... In the 20s? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a long line. You know, it's really in a, an American form of entertainment. I think like, you know, now that, you know, I'm on to other things, but the 1860s, a troupe came here from England and it morphed with our vaudeville and minstrel shows to become this thing called burlesque because it, in the early part of um, like the 1910s, we had a lot of immigrants come here 
and they didn't speak the language here. I mean, New York, because that's where it came. But they could, for a little amount of money, they could go to a burlesque show, and the humor was really broad. It was all humor-based. So, so they could understand, without having to hear a joke, the humor of it. And then there would be pretty girls. So it was really for, you know, the working class, for men. And then it, you know, as everything, it morphs. Then it became not quite a family show, although there was that, but it, then it became women went to them. And then as it morphed from, started having competition with other things, then you have more girls and you get a little bit more risque. To, you know, it was always about keeping, you know, the customers coming in. But it was a huge, huge form of, of entertainment in America for years that was really, you know, its legacy, it's really dismissed as... Um, there was no talent. It was borderline uh, prostitution, which it was not at all. The men, if they wanted to, the comedians, and they did, they went into radio and had respectable careers, and then they went into television, you know, Abbott Costello and Ellen Alda's father. Ellen Alda's uh, was in my documentary. His father was a big uh, straight man, which, the, you know, was a comedian, then there was a good-looking straight man. And they could all go on and have careers, but the women never could. So their so their career either died after a certain amount of time, or they just did something else with their lives. Was there some commonality to these women? What drew them to this profession? They wanted most of them to be stars. A lot of them had. Um, so it was the Hollywood in the sense? Yeah, the I mean, Hollywood but you dream. know, it was it was theater. So they're not all running out to. Um, to Hollywood or New York, there was a big circuit of theaters throughout the Midwest. And, and so you could be from Idaho and the local theater or the next town over, and you didn't have to have a talent per se to uh, have a following. And they, they wanted to be on the stage. A lot of them could dance, some couldn't. What I found the most interesting, and I didn't realize it till, till years afterwards, um, there was every type of body type of these women. And some worked till they were 50, 60. Tibis Storm was probably 70 or 80 when she quit. But they never disparaged their bodies, which I thought was so interesting. It was not like, oh, I was so fat, or I felt I was fat, or my breasts weren't big enough. Or they just kind of thought, you know, I'm awesome, and here I am. But it was really making a living. And it was also, you know, the height of it during... The Great Depression, when a lot of people couldn't make a living and vaudeville really died, there, there was the burlesque theaters. You could go in there for a dime. You can go in there for 25 cents. You could sit there all day long and have some place to be. You could laugh. You could be entertained. And these people maintained their careers throughout this you know, really hard time in our country. Were they part of their own act or were they part of a, of a stage performance that, like you said, had comedians involved it, or it, other actors or... It would be a, you know, a complete uh, show. There would be comedians or, you know, at the, at the height of it, there was everything. There was, a, you know, big chorus girls of dancing girls. There were singers. There was straight men. And then there was the strippers. I mean, the strippers eventually took over, especially into the 50s when you start competing with, with television. But it was a big you know, Broadway-type variety show of everything. You would have acrobats and people standing on their hands, which you think, oh, my God, how did they make a living? But they actually made a living doing this. 
So it's a big Broadway type show, but you would have your own act. Uh, the strippers would go in and they would say, "Here, you know, they would hand their music to the orchestra. This is this is what I'm going to dance to." And you had your amount of time, so you didn't have to fit in with the show. It wasn't like a themed show. Everybody had their act. Some of the strippers, not the headliners, but the other strippers, would work with the comedians, and they'd get paid a little more for doing a little skit. But everybody kind of had their place, but it wasn't. Some shows were traveling, um, and some some it would be for that theater, and then they would have guest acts come in. You know, it was all a variety of how it worked. Was there a center uh, in the country for burlesque performances, or was it East Coast, West Coast, middle of the country? A lot. It was a lot of Chicago's, like Philadelphia, Cleveland, um, later... Florida, there was some in LA, San Francisco, the World Fairs, there was elements of it. Uh, some of those dancers like Sally Rand, who is my third book that I wrote about because she was really interesting. Um, so it was really spread out all over. And then there's elements of it in the circus. You know, there was a lot of, of the same similar type acts and there was strip acts and certain tents and so it's really it's really embedded in our culture that we don't even know. So there there wasn't the stigma back then of body shaming or, or body type. I'm I'm assuming there was every sort of body type that were every sort, but th- there was definitely a stigma that you were a stripper because you were really and actually even in burlesque, the men less so, obviously, because they're not taking off their clothes. But they're, you know, one of the um women who was in it forever said to me it was kind of us against them you knew you went you walked you went into a town when you're traveling and they kind of looked at you oh you're a stripper you're less than um and that's why I think nobody had had ever asked them what their story was beyond what kind of act did you do uh what was your stripper name and that's why I think they were so grateful that I that I asked them and wanted to know what their story was. But there definitely was nothing about a body. You didn't have to look a certain way. It wasn't like a showgirl, like a Ziegfeld showgirl or an Earl Carroll showgirl that they were actually measured and you had to be this height and you had to look a, you know, a certain way. They were just anything was there everything. A, was there a typical age for a gal to enter that they were young. They they started as teens, but like I said, you could a lot of them did. If they were big stars, they worked until they were forty. They worked until they were fifty, sixty, seventy. They made enough money to survive. Oh God, yeah. Some made huge amounts of money, and others made a living. You put a lot of it, and depending on the era, you put a lot of it back into your act because because nobody's buying your costumes, nobody's having your music um, made for you. Um, Travel, sometimes you had to pay your own expenses, just depended. A lot of um, had really elaborate acts, and they all paid for it themselves. There was, oh my God, these women were great. Blaze Star, I don't know if you know who she uh, absolutely. was. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? There was that film. Um, I talked to her. She was hilarious. She had a variety of cats um, that she traveled with, like panthers, maybe a jaguar, and... She, and she talked about one time she went into this town and she went out shopping and she came back to the hotel and they're like all in an uproar and her her 
her room was flooding and they didn't want to go into it because she, they knew she had a panther in there and it had somehow gotten into the shower and it was flooding the place and she went in on there and she said it, it jumped on her and she thought it was going for her jugular. She had, a, she had another act where she built a couch that would light on fire and so she had, you know, she traveled with all the stuff. Then there was Lily Sincere who traveled with antique furniture and bathtubs. And she did her act in furs and jewels. So she made a lot, a lot. So they made a great living and for, they could work 50, you know, weeks out of the year. For, for the majority of the gals that were in burlesque, how long was their career? I, I know that you said that a few of them had lasted, you know, later on into 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah, some some just a season. Um, okay. I remember one lady said uh, sometimes a girl just wanted to be have enough to make to buy a new Frigidaire or something. So I think, you know, it's also a hard life because you're you are always on the road. I know a lot of them. Um, were mothers, were single mothers, and that was really difficult. They are, their children were left behind in not great circumstances, and I think the children um, really suffered because of it. A lot of them were really bitter about it. When I talked to the children as adults, you know, it was, it was hard. So a lot of them got out as soon as they could make money or as soon as they found a husband or went on to another career. It just depended. So you had mentioned that they were looked down upon <clears throat> more like strippers than than actual, or more like prostitutes. Prostitutes what they were, that you know, way. So, like, yeah. How, in your interviewing of them later on in life, how did they overcome that that stigma? Because I'm sure that there, to some of them, there must have been some post traumatic stress related to that, whether they were catcalled that in, in their communities that they lived in or on stage. Well, I think it kept them kind of insular uh, sometimes to themselves. If they weren't a big name and if they weren't known, like a Blaze star who was blatant about it, but she's also later in the, she, you know, her stardom in the late 40s, 50s, um, I think you kept to yourself. I think a lot of them never talked about it. They went by different names. One woman who ended up being, she claimed, the first female theatrical agent in New York. When I interviewed her, she was probably late 70s. She said she had just told her kids the year before, and they were 48. Wow. Really? And they never knew anything about her Never knew. She just didn't talk about it. She was embarrassed by that? Uh, It just, it was really just not considered anything worthy of talking about. Wow. You know, it'd be like, oh, you were a stripper without thinking what that meant, that there was an act to it, that you did dance. The, the great majority of them didn't show much of anything. There was a ton of rules. Um, so, yeah, there was just, you know, and, and they were really just dismissed as a stripper where they considered themselves dancers. And then you show up in their lives and, and uh, they get some... Relive it all. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my, and they loved it. I mean, it gave them great lives. They got to travel. They got to see things. They got that stardom that they probably wouldn't have have had otherwise because they weren't trained as actors. Um, you know, even Gypsy Rose Lee, when she when Hollywood called and said we're going to put you in films, then they wouldn't use her name because she was Gypsy the stripper. 
I mean, it made no sense. <laughs> so she had to have a different name? Yeah, she went by, I think, her real name, which was Louise Havoc. Mm. I mean, you know, like for women, it was much harder than a man could, you know, say that they were a comedian in that. Do you feel like this experience changed your life in any in any way? I don't know if it changed my life. I think, well, the experience of making the documentary, because then I was like, oh, I can make one, so I'm going to go make another, and I'll go make another. They all stayed in my lives. I went to their memorials and their funerals, and I sat on the bed with one mm. woman who was 97 when I interviewed her. She could still kick her leg up over her head. It was kind wow. of amazing. As a 97-year-old? Yeah, I swear. But, you know, I have footage of her just holding her hand while she's crying, talking about missing her partner of 60 years who had just died. I mean, they all just kind of stayed in my life, and they would call me with all their medical problems and and everything. Um, so... So there was just a, a connection, but I keep that with any subject matter that I'm going to work about. It's talk, or, you know, write about or create. It's not going to be about somebody that I don't, you know, there's been fascinating <clears throat> characters. You think, oh, that would be an interesting story, but they're a mass murder. I don't want to, you know, I don't really need that in my life. It's like I would rather shine a light on on something that's that was a really misunderstood art like that, like my second film about Siamese twins um, and freak shows and like, you know, the third one about a female tiger trainer. I mean, there's so much stigma to all these careers when people, especially like the tiger and talking about the circus, people don't take into account the times. You know, when I, I did a film called Mabel Mabel Tiger Trainer about Mabel Stark, the first female tiger trainer, now, she started, I'll probably get all these years wrong because I haven't looked at it a while. I think she started in 1911, 1914. Circuses were the only way to see animals. They recreated historical events. Um, it was entertainment. And then when I, when I was filming it, I actually went around on a, uh, with a circus for a couple towns. And they were, and this is not that many years ago, they were still going to little dinky towns that had no sort of entertainment. So these circuses that pulled in, which were like traveling cities, they were so giant, really brought entertainment and they brought education to a town, which they're still kind of doing. Mm -hmm. But when I talked about it to a lot of people, they're like, oh my God, animals. Oh my God, they should never do this with animals. That's not the issue. We're, you have to take it historically of the time. And the woman I was talking about, she hand-raised them. Um, they were in her house. They were not by any means abused. She basically gave her life to these cats. Um, and she was scarred head to toe. So, it's, so I like delving into subjects like that that people just dismiss as, you know, Oh my God! She she had tigers and was training them. She must have been hitting them all the time. So so, how did you find out about Mabel the tiger trainer and and realize that this is a documentary I have to make? Well, it's all you know. It started with the burlesque, and because of doing research in the burlesque, I found these Siamese twins who were briefly in burlesque, which was rather horrifying. And there, 
there. And, and these were conjoined yes, Siamese twins, they right? They were. Okay. And they were huge. They're the ones from the side the the Broadway play sideshow. Okay. Um and then the revival, which they actually asked to have my see my film, as did um American Horror Story, because their their uh, story about Siamese twins were coming out. And so they wanted to show the cast. But because I was doing research on that and <clears throat> sideshows and burlesque and, and freak shows, I heard about Mabel's story. And it really interests me. I thought, this. Well, I mean, I would never go into a tiger cage. I was like, what does that take? So I thought it was going to be all about courage and her courage to do this. So I, she, was, she had passed, but I had talked to, I had found her last mentee a man that she mentored and he, because of my other work and, and the way I treated the subject, he's like, I have all her stuff. I'm just opening it up for you. And I just, I wasn't going to do the film unless I could find a lot of footage on her. And there was a ton of footage on her. So I interviewed a bunch of female current and recently retired female animal trainers also to get their point of view um, about working with animals, and it turned out to be, have nothing to do with courage. It was all about love, which I thought mm -hmm. was super interesting. It, it, it's interesting that that they've, I guess, cataloged that uh, video from the early 1900s on a tiger trainer. Yeah, I mean, she, you know, she, and she was such an idol of everybody that came after her because she, she was trained in this trained in this kindness method. I mean, her training was she, you know, she had had a horrible, horrible, horrific, abusive childhood, basically ran away to join the circus as people did and could and had a career. And she was working like with goats or something. And she saw a tiger and she fell in love with them and they are mesmerizing if you've been like I've been this close to them with you know a cage in between me of course um and they're just stunning animals but she really fell in love and the main animal trainer on the circus that she was working she said I want to work animals he said okay we'll start with the lions just go in there and you know if you survive um trial by fire that, that's yeah that was the training uh-huh and <laughs> if you survive that's your training yeah, you know it's like here just go figure it out and i think i remember from watching actually watching that documentary that she said that she always knew that she would die by a tiger well she wanted to die by him. or she wanted to die by a tiger. yeah if she was gonna die she wanted her her tigers to take her out how long did she last being a tiger trainer in the <laughs> circus oh god she was still working uh in her, I, I can't quote exactly, but I think it was her 70s. And when I was talking to Roger, her mentee said it would drive him nuts because she had that she started wearing this big, broad rimmed hat out in the sun, which you need your peripheral vision mm -hmm. for these cats. She didn't have any in her later years, had no accidents, but she did completely before her body was completely scarred head to toe from numerous attacks and you know that and they know and all the all the trainers that I talk to they know those cats are waiting to get you looking for an opportunity to, to hurt you oh yeah of course really oh yeah 
And, you know, once she fell and that was an opportunity, they just went for her. But that's, that was just their instinct. But I mean, she loved them and everybody that I talked to that worked with these cats absolutely loved them. So my- but respected them, knew that like, we're not going to be friends and I'm not going to try and subdue you. It was really kind of an interest in their mind to see what they could have the cat do. And she said, and you know, a lot of them said some cats would, you, you couldn't get them to do anything. They're not going to go up on that, on the stool. So you, you see what other kind of thing you can get them to do. Did she ever marry or have children at all? Uh, I'm- <laughs> she married numerous times, oh, okay. um, usually for her, her advantage in the circus. Um, but she never had children. She didn't want children. And um, I think it was, you know, because of her childhood partly. I'm not sure how amorous her relationships were with her husbands. Um, not as much as it was with the tigers, apparently. Yeah. The tigers took first you know, precedence. And actually when I was uh, following this one circus, even though it was a male um, trainer of, of uh, these tigers, he was telling me, he said, you look, I, they have to be, I'm, I have to be here 24 seven for them. I've told my girlfriend, they come first. And he did. We walked, you know, we were there for days and it was like, he's always with them. He's always playing with them and letting them out and, yeah, I was thinking about that when you were telling the story about her as she ran away from an abusive home. She found her family in the circus, right? And and the and these lions became her children or her brothers and sisters. And I'm yeah, sure she absolutely. she raised multiple sets, I'm sure, of, of oh, lions yeah. throughout her career. Yeah, I've got great pictures of her just at the dining room table. And there they are. They're like, okay, you're two little cats just sitting there with you. But yeah, and that's the great thing about you know, burlesque and, and sideshow and circus. It's, it's these misfit people or misunderstood people, somebody who wants more and they find their community and, and it's a community that kind of stays together and they look out for each other. Do you feel like that experience changed you in any way? Cause I mean, you've had contact with some incredibly unusual people. I know, but I don't, they seem usual to me. I mean, it just seems, I don't know. I, I find them interesting. They make sense to you on an emotional level? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I like that they had the courage to do, to find their way. You know, especially Mabel, you know, leaving all the abuse to, to find her way. And she did, you know, I mean, I think she was more scarred on the inside than she actually was on the outside and didn't really trust people. And she was really betrayed at the end. Um, I don't want to give it away for the film, but she was very, (laughs) very much betrayed again by people. Um, so it was really all she had was the cats and that connection and her responsibility and, you know, she cleaned out their cages. She fed them. She did everything. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not like necessarily we think of, or I had never, I guess, thought about, you know, oh, you're you're a trainer and you go in there and you do this big brouhaha and leave. No, it was like 24-7, you know, cleaning up and like all their stuff. Did you have free reign in, in making these documentaries? And, and what I mean by that is that, that maybe certain family members or certain 
people that were close to the situation didn't want the story told in a certain way or hope it was portrayed in a certain way? No, nobody never said anything. I mean, I think by the, especially by the time I got to Mabel, they were really, because, you know, they would look up my work and I don't go in to my work with any point of view. I just go in to gather the information and tell the story. And if there is going to be negative things about it, I will tell it. Um, so, but nobody ever said, oh, I hope you don't tell this or, yeah, and if they tell me something in privacy, obviously, and they say this isn't for the camera, I'm not going to do that. But I was never restrained in any way. Was there a commonality? I, again, I asked that question about the, the gals that were during burlesque, but or, or were there commonalities amongst the three types of, of documentaries that you did in the in these women between a burlesque dancer a tiger trainer or a conjoined Siamese twin mm -hmm. when we talk about stigmatized or marginalized people or women um, that may be looked upon differently in society was did you find some commonalities with them or or you know what what was the important piece that you learned about them well you know it's just such a simple thing that they're more than their title <clears throat> You know, they're not just a stripper. They're not a freak. They're not a circus person. You know, that there's a, a name and a history behind all that. And I think I think as society, we tend to label people so we could dismiss them or that wasn't an important part of anything. Um, so I just look for the, the people behind it. And I think they were all just labeled as whatever like there's a million kinds of experiences just because somebody was a burlesque stripper you know they had interesting lives and did try to do interesting things and some of them failed some of them lost all their money some of them had you know did do drugs some of them didn't some were you know straight as arrows some were very good mothers uh it was just a, a variety of experience like there isn't any kind of career but we just tend to think it's one thing. Was anybody in your personal family involved in the work that you did? No. no? Were they I know. I wish. I wish I like could find a, <laughs> you know, burlesque stripper or circus person in my family. But no. And what about your family? Did they take an interest in what you were doing? Oh yeah, they love my work. Do they? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did any of them ask to participate in helping you do your work? No. no. It's kind of like a, I just well, get I, it together and do it. Well, I mean, I asked you that question because my daughter was so thrilled when Kim and I asked her to uh, produce our show. Uh -huh. She said, I can't believe I get to work with my dad. It's such a wonderful uh, thing to be able to do. Uh -huh. So I just wondered if your kids are. Oh, they would be too, they were too little. I mean, I was pregnant during one of the films. Oh, okay. Like very pregnant. <laughs> have, any, have any of your kids expressed interest in going into the business, whether whether it's into film, whether it's into documentary, whether it's being a writer? Yeah, they they have those interests? No? They're yeah, we'll see. Still too, still yeah, in that age of trying to figure it out. But yeah. have they expressed any interest at all of what mom and dad have done or what mom and dad do? Yeah, I mean, you know, they certainly know. Yeah. Yeah. And have they watched the documentaries or have they, or are they at the age where it's they've, like, uh, it's like, okay, they've watched, watch this. they've watched some, they've watched my latest, which is hilarious of all ones, you know, about the courtesans in France. 
And what's their kind of what's their impression of 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 your work? I don't know. N- never asked, or they don't mm-hmm. no? Huh? Not interested in in what they're what they may think. <laughs> it's not that I'm not interested. It's like I don't want to put them on the spot, or you don't know. It's just the work is there. Because I, I think it's important work. I mean, you've you've taken a piece of American history mm-hmm. that had been forgotten or dismissed. Right. And or, I don't want to or say, bent in another or way. bent in a different way, yeah. whichever way somebody wanted to bend it. Right. right. So I think it's, uh, I, I, you know, again, it's it is part of our culture and, and what, you know, how our culture evolved from that. So I think, you know, as a young person, I think it's important for them. And, and again, maybe the subject matter, you know, like my kid thinks that, you know, there were no roads or cars when I was born. Right. He thinks I'm that, that, that old. So I'm, you know, I can't relate to, to anything, but um, I, I do, do think that the work that you're doing is, is very, very important and that young people should really take note and appreciate that. Well, thank you. On that. So I mean, when it made me think about um, what I loved about doing my uh, film about the, and I call them Siamese twins. People give me SH about are, it sometimes. Are they still alive? No. No. Okay. Uh, they died in the sixties. But they really, um, their story, even though it was made into this Broadway musical, which the music is absolutely fantastic, they, people just didn't get their story. And I found it. I found their story. I mean, what was interesting to me about them, and I found like their god daughter, um, who remembered playing with them on a, on a porch when they were, they had these... Um, captors captors really who never let them out of the house their guardians you know they were sold at birth this whole horrible horrible thing but what was the most interesting about them which people didn't get about their story is they thought they were normal really so they didn't understand huh. why they couldn't get love why they they didn't un- huh. you know because one they were really kept away from the world so if they saw a cute man and for nefarious means that, he, that that man was trying to get to them and marry one of them, they didn't understand that because they weren't out in the world, one. But they didn't see themselves as freaks. Interesting. But everybody else did. And I think that was probably the, the almost greatest downfall to them that they didn't realize other people were seeing them in this way. Dana and I talk about, uh, in previous podcasts and in, in the book that we're doing, about taking on other people's emotions and, mm-hmm. and how, and I've asked Dana this thing as a clinical psychologist, how, how he can do his job day in and day out and, and have this objectivity and not take on somebody's energy because there's horrific stories that, mm-hmm. that he hears and, and a lot of traumas and he has to maintain that effectiveness to be able to help these people. And I, I, I kind of, think that there's some similarity in in kind of what you're doing with these documentary films and you know there i'm sure there were some horrific facts that you've heard mm-hmm. and and whether they're in your the film or not but I, I, we talked about this early on about you know uh having the 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 freedom to make the film that you want to make is and so how does if you've taken on i don't know if you took on any of these people's uh, energy or um, 
or, or any negativity toward them? And, and did that sway any of your objectivity in terms of making these documentaries, if, if that makes sense to you? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think there really is something how you have to be a witness to history. You have to, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm inter, inter, currently interviewing something right now for the next book I'm going to do, and the stories are difficult. And I cry sometimes when they cry. But ultimately, you have to gather all the facts. I mean, you can put that emotion into the writing or certainly into the film. I know what I want my audience to feel or to come away with, um, but I don't take it on, you know, like for the rest of the day, if that makes sense. No, it, 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 it definitely does. Um. Well, I, I was, I mean, Kim brings up a good point because the, most of the people you work with have had their struggles for sure. Yeah. And well, now most of them are all dead. Yes. I, I mean, I appreciate <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's, you know, the sad thing is like you do eventually just start, you know, one after the other, you see them go because they're all, I'm dealing with older people that time gone by, you know, those, we don't have those kind of entertainments anymore. But, but it sounds like you were able to separate yourself from their struggles. Yes. Yeah, so, in kind of objective. Yeah. I mean, there's some, you know, stories that you hear. There's one in particular, uh, this man I interviewed, he was just so sad about the loss of his wife who had been a huge star. And then the stories I heard about him afterwards, which I couldn't include because I couldn't verify them really. I could have added them and it would have been a little bit titillating, but I just couldn't because I don't really have it as fact, but it does kind of make you change your mind about that person, you know, but if you don't, if you're not dealing with facts, you just have to just go, okay, this is the story that I have to tell. In your extended family, does anybody else uh, sort of live in the world that you live in? Of, of siblings or uh, of story of, of whatever just, telling yeah, or whatever it is no for a living no because what I you do is I unusual do. No. maybe it's not unusual so. to you but it is a little <laughs> bit unusual don't you think not really because yeah? i'm know, used to it how many people have made documentaries on the things you've made documentaries yeah it, i'm gonna ask maybe the obvious question but if you weren't married to who you're married to uh -huh. would you've gotten into filmmaking or Hopefully. was he was he was he a a motivator or, or a teacher or any of that way. I know he's not here to talk talk about uh, himself, but is did he have an influence in you doing these documentaries in any way? No, I don't think so. I think I just wanted to tell these stories, and I knew, I just felt like I knew that I could. I'd never made a documentary, but, you know, I'm smart. I know I've seen enough. I could figure it out. It's like we were talking about earlier before we started recording is that I was telling you that I, th that my feeling was you're a very good storyteller because when you can evoke emotion mm -hmm. in, in the story you're telling and, and again, looking at the documentaries and watching those documentaries that you had, it certainly evoked emotion with me. And that's why I had brought up that question. My God, if I was doing hours and hours of interviews with either these people that are alive or their family members or coworkers or, or friends and so on and so forth. I, boy, I don't, I don't know how attractive I could be in actually making, making that film because I, I'm one of those people that do naturally take on other people's energy that way. But I also do like, I think every project I've done 
It's at least like five years of research. Before you start it? Before, during. I mean, you know, to film, my burlesque film, that took two years just to shoot and then to put it together and blah, blah, blah. You know, so I, you kind of become objective because there's so many stories and so much fact that you just start going, oh, I know this part of it needs to be told. People will, you know, have an appreciation of this person in a certain way or, or whatever, or this is funny or, or this is something I've never heard before. So I just think you, you know, I feel like a little fact person. I'm just gathering up all these little facts and stories. Does your intuition play a role in the creative process for you? Probably, probably just in the uh, putting it together, you know, like this goes here and then no, this should go here and leave them with this. I mean, my, um, was it, I think it was Mabel. I just wasn't sure because, you know, without saying, because you have to watch the film, um, (laughs) because the ending's so tragic, you know, it it took me a bit to figure out, you know, I can't take people on this journey and they just kind of like, that's the end. So you kind of, so I'm sure my intuition was like, I could figure it out. Oh, this. So yeah. You know, you just kind of like try and pull something to just make a good story. Is it a conscious thing for you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And how did you come upon sort of consciously trusting your intuition in the, in the creative process? Why wouldn't I trust it? Well, because most people don't. Because most people don't. Oh, well. <laughs> I mean, my that, That's Dane and I do a lot <laughs> of talking about that because, you know, we don't. Because we allow our ego and our subconscious and our conscious to override what our inner self <laughs> is trying to tell us. Yeah. So you'd be an anomaly. I think that so. Way. Well, most of the trouble people get into is that they know better. But because of fear, or like Kim is saying, they don't want to deal with it on a a level that could increase their loneliness. I mean, a lot of people in relationships, I see people at the end of their relationships and I ask them, you know, did you know that these problems existed when you got together with the person in the first place? Mm-hmm. And the only question I've had the same universal answer to is yes, nobody's ever said no. And so my follow-up question is, well, you know, what were you thinking? And the person always gives me a magical answer. I thought he would change. I thought she would change. Um, people are really hard time trusting their intuition because it, often takes them away from something that they fantasize they'd like to have or, you know, you have to stay lonely or whatever it might be. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of the stories of the burlesque ladies, you know, they were, you know, one woman in the film says it greatly. She goes, I thought the good times were going to last forever. Never thought I was going to get old. You know, it's like, and and that was, you know, and, and then they pay the price a little bit because, or a lot, you know, they don't have the money, they don't have the support, they don't have the career, they don't have the looks. Um, a lot of them didn't have family at the end. So, yeah, they thought, you know. They sound like professional magical athletes. world that was just going to go on forever. The party. And even if they, even if like some, you know, picture of Dorian Gray and they had retained their looks, you know, burlesque went away. Yeah. As a, as a, as a viable career. Does it live today somewhere? It does. There's Neo. I, I, it's 
super popular and it's great because there's lots of, you know, it's called boylesque. So there's lots of boys okay. and it's brought back a lot of the humor, which burlesque really was. I think it's hard to make a living at the, the way it was. I mean, you know, hundreds, thousands of people could make a living off it because there was a circuit. There was always some place to do. I think now it's more scrambling and there's probably <clears throat> two jobs. Um, but that's one of the things that was just so interesting to me that these people were making careers, sometimes not off doing very much. I interviewed this guy who had a, uh, I guess you'd call it an acrobatic act. They wouldn't go on very long, but they were like kind of muscle men and mm -hmm. do like stuff. And they had careers for years doing this in a burlesque show. And you just kind of think, where could you do that nowadays and make a living? Cirque Soleil, I guess, would be the only. But they weren't even. I mean, they were sort of skilled, and they could oh, do okay. it. But they're they not doing. They're not doing an hour of trapeze. Right, right. They they weren't professionals at it. You know, so it's just you know, it's just fascinating. And where is your career evolving to at this point in time? If we might ask. I don't know. You're not sure. You're not working on a, a current. Uh, oh yeah, I'm working on a, a couple books right now. I had to think if that's true. Yes, that, and I, I still have a film and um, doing the circuit in festivals that actually premiered at the Santa Barbara Film Festival. And what's the film about? About courtesans in the Second Empire of France. Oh, okay. I mean, they seem like such um, obscure. That's a, that's a bit obscure, no? Yeah, a lot of people didn't know what courtesans uh, 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 were niche, when I tell them. A niche audience there. It's what? A niche audience there. <laughs> Yeah, and, and but so, it's pretty, you know, it's another one. Like they were, the, you know, the courtesans were really super influential in their day. Big stars written about up in all the paper, fashion plates. Um, and they had power, which people didn't realize way more than a married woman. They could have their, they could have money and they could have property where a married woman couldn't at the time. Um, so it's just another you know, group of women misunderstood. And how do you do research on the, on the subject? There's, there's a, ton, a lot of stuff out there. I do, you know, I look at a lot of archives. I read a ton, newspaper articles. Um, you know, I just do all the research myself so I can keep it in my head, sort of. It's, it's really interesting subject matter. I, I, again, I'm going to ask the question, how did you stumble upon that? Um, was there was there a, a parallel to something else that you've done? That Not that really. I mean, I've now? just read a lot about them, and I thought this would be really interesting. Could I make it as a documentary? And then I figured out a way that I could, because obviously there's no footage on them. Mm -hmm. um, but I hired some burlesque girls who actually look like three of the girls that I highlight in the film, and I filmed them. Um, so actual current burlesque dancers yeah. who are very comfortable in their bodies and they're nude in my film. Um, but, but they look like these women. It's incredible. So was that just lucky casting or good casting? I was there? good casting. Yeah. I knew, I mean, I cast them because they looked like these women and I knew they would be comfortable enough to be, you know, in their bodies. And they were. And it's won a lot of awards. Congratulations. Can I ask you a tiny bit about where you come from in your family? Because you, you seem to feel really comfortable uh, 
going after what you desire. Yeah. So why do you have to psychoanalyze it? <laughs> you know, I'm not looking to psychoanalyze it. It's just I don't know if you if you recognize how unusual it is. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious about your family and how they sort of interacted with you to, to help you stay really centered within yourself. Well, maybe I just figured out how to stay centered by myself. Tell us the secret. <laughs> tell us your, tell us your secret, because that's what everybody that's listening right now is going to go, well, I want to know what her secret is. Well, there's no secret. I don't know. I just have, I don't know. I mean, was your family very really supportive of you and encouraging of you to trust your instincts and your intelligence and all that? Or, or do you just kind no of take it No more than anybody granted? else. I mean, I think you just figure it out. Oh my goodness! I don't know. I've just—I don't think there's—you know—I'm I'm going to hide you in my closet for a week so you can hear how most people feel about themselves and how they, <laughs> and and how little people are encouraged to trust their instincts and really develop their creativity and and uh, and how often people are influenced to not be who they are well, in order to be loved in their family. Well, you've heard the cliches of why people go into acting, right? It's the same thing as why somebody becomes a comedian, right? Because they're going to try and heal their own trauma through their humor and actors are the same. You know, the cliche is that actors have such, such a small self-worth that they're going to acting to increase their, their self-worthiness. See, Uh, that's misconception. Like strippers are all prostitutes. Right. That's what I'm saying here. So, so what Dana was saying is that, you know, you're very confident, right? And, And then that your confident is, is infectious there. And so it's interesting that you've kind of chosen the, the path that you've you've kind of chosen there yeah. in that way. Well, I have a mentoring group I started with um, and then the Santa Barbara Film Festival because they're very much into education, mm-hmm. uh, sponsors it with me. It's called Stories Matter, and it's professional female authors mentoring, you know, like the next generation of young girls. And it's about finding your voice um, and that your story matters. That's why it's called Stories Matter. Um, so I don't know what my point was, but yeah. So, and, and, and I think that's, I think that's, that's such a good mission to take mm-hmm. on. And are these local girls here in the Santa Barbara community? They have been they, mostly sometimes, okay. you know, because we had to do it all during, uh, Zoom, during COVID, uh, which actually one session, I've had three sessions, one, you know, like they're like five or six weeks. One session we actually had. Uh, a lot of girls from around the country, so that was really cool. And, and are these teenage girls? They're, they're college. They have to be, eight, you know, I think it's 18 to 32. And, and are they they wanting to be novelists, write screenplays? Kind of everything. All, everything, okay. I said I don't really deal with screenplays. Um, that's not my forte, so it's really the written word, but it's just telling their story however they want to do it, how, however way they want to tell it, and just, you know... It's not there. There, most of them are in college or have just finished it, and it's not what you're going to learn in college about the proper noun and the theme and the arc and all this stuff. It's just tell your story. You know, don't worry about that other stuff because that you're getting in your education. Now, just go tell your story. Right. There's an matters. art. Yeah. There's an art to storytelling. Yeah. Right. That isn't taught didactically. Yeah. That way. You must have you must have a story that you want to bring to the big screen and not just make it a documentary. I don't know that I want to. I think all my stuff could be made into the big screen. I'm not sure that I'm interested in doing it. I've had lots of offers on stuff. 
some really big people. Um, but they were not, I wasn't going to sell it for what they were trying to do. So I'd rather say no. Not from a monetary perspective, from a creative perspective? Yeah, it was creative sort of perspective. Creative differences? Very. Well, <laughs> I would assume that you became very fond of most of the people that you Oh, yeah, everybody. They were great. So you want to make sure that they're being properly represented. Yeah, on or that journey. somebody's not going to try and stop me from doing more work on it. They're not buying the, the rights to every bit of research that I ever did. I'm going to, I'm going to ask a similar question that Dana, Dana already asked you, but is there something we thought I opened the podcast by talking about a robust life. And I meant that, um, is there something that, and it doesn't have to be within documentaries or, or screenplays or, or in books. Is there something in, in your life still that you want to do? Oh yeah. Lots of stuff. I mean, I want to continue doing this for sure. Um, I don't look too far ahead. It's just like I want to just focus on a couple projects at a time. Otherwise, it gets just overwhelming. And as as we come up on the the end of this this conversation here, is is there a certain legacy that that you want to leave? Whether it's to your family, whether it's to your work whether it's to yourself. Have you ever, th- have you ever thought about that? Because where am I going? Uh, let's say 30 years, 40, 50 years down the road, right? When you've, when you've, when you've put something up on the big screen, you've taken the Academy Awards, you've made your documentaries, you've written all the words that you can possibly write. Um, is there, is there a certain legacy that Leslie would love to leave with, with anybody as she departs into the next life? If there is such a thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't. I don't think about it. I just want to keep doing the work I that interests me, and that's all I can do is what interests me. And it, if it finds an audience, it finds an audience, which it usually does because it's interesting subjects. Um, that's all. Well, we appreciate you being here. Thank, thank you. Thank you. And uh, I want you to keep being different and keep producing the different things <laughs> from somebody that that was called different. By his mother from an from an early age, I've, I've difference good. I've I've embraced that, and I don't like being in the middle lane. I love being different. So keep doing what you're doing. I'll continue to be different, and and we'll have you back on the next uh, book or the next documentary and <laughs> talk some more with you. But thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you. We appreciate our listeners and are interested in your comments and suggestions. Feel free to email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor for this podcast, please email us at fearmeoutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. See you next time.